Welcome to the Talk to Your Pharmacist podcast. We're dispensing stories of success from across the continuum of care. I'm your host, Hillary Blackburn. Thanks for joining us to learn from leaders throughout the pharmacy industry. This podcast is sponsored by TheraWorks Relief. Many of you get sore, achy legs from standing all day or get asked about painful foot and leg cramps. If so, you're going to want to hear about TheraWorks Relief, a clinically proven topical foam that prevents and relieves muscle cramps and soreness. Learn more at theraworksrelief.com. Hi, listeners. In this episode, you'll hear from an ER pharmacist who shares what life is like in the emergency room. This is a fast-paced, think-on-your-feet type of environment and one where pharmacy can play a major role in advising on high-cost medications and implementing programs such as opioid stewardship. All right, so today we have a special guest on the Talk to Your Pharmacist podcast, our guest Justin Greiner, who is an emergency department pharmacist at Regional One in Memphis, Tennessee. He's an assistant professor for clinical pharmacy and translational science at UT College of Pharmacy. He received his BA in English literature and a BS in biology from the University of Memphis and his PharmD from the University of Tennessee College of Pharmacy. After completing his PGY1 residency at Methodist University in Memphis, he has served as preceptors for the ED rotation for both the PGY1 and PGY2 residents of Regional 1. He is a co-founder and co-chair of the Opioid Stewardship Committee at Regional 1 and is a faculty advisor for the Memphis chapter of APHA ASP's Generation X. He's a member of Shelby County's Opioid Education and Prevention Work Group and is active in the Tennessee Pharmacists Association and Tennessee Society of Health Systems Pharmacy. Justin, welcome to the Talk to Your Pharmacist podcast. Thanks, Hillary. Hi. Well, thanks for being a guest. And now that our listeners have heard a little bit about your background, maybe you can fill in any gaps from that intro and maybe share a little bit about your personal life. Uh, sure. I guess the most important thing about me, uh, two things. Uh, I am uh, the husband of Katie and the father of Elizabeth. So those are the two things I'm most proud of, certainly in, in my life. So you, you mentioned I have a, a bachelor's in English lit and a, a bachelor's in biology. Uh, you didn't mention that sort of there was a gap in between those two <laughs> degrees where I was sort of wandering the wilderness for a little while, deciding what I, I wanted to do with my life. So uh, sort of in that gap, I uh, did a few different things. I had my own radio show on a, an AM radio station in Middle Tennessee uh, called The Morning Show with Justin G., which is, uh, if anyone remembers it, hopefully it's remembered fondly somewhere. I was a, a minister, associate minister in a small church. I worked as a research technician in the Department of Developmental Neurobiology at St. Jude here in Memphis, and uh, I was also a pharmacy technician. And that pharmacy technician is what led me down the road to eventually uh, pursuing my PharmD and uh, the position where I'm at today. But all of these different experiences have certainly had a major impact in my life and have uh, added some variety to my life, I guess, that I wouldn't uh, have otherwise normally had. Certainly. A lot of interesting skills, too, that you've picked up along the way, I'm sure. 
<laughs> and so, Justin, just to set the scene for our audience, Regional One, tell us a little bit more about that because it is a, a major level one trauma center. Sure. So, uh, Regional One is located in, in Memphis, Tennessee. Uh, I work in the Elvis Presley Trauma Center at Regional One, uh, named for, uh, you know, obviously, our Memphis's most famous citizen of all time, Elvis. Um, we are the only adult level one trauma center in in Memphis and in Western Tennessee and within a, about a 150 mile radius. So we serve northern Mississippi, eastern Arkansas, a little bit of southern Missouri and obviously West Tennessee. So the the most severe traumas in that area, that 150 mile radius come to us. So we, we see a lot of severe traumas and that's what our, our specialty is at regional one. And for those who may remember the med, uh, that's the same thing, correct? That is correct. That uh, we, for many, many years, we are we're known as the med, and uh, to to many old timers and to to many people in the community, we will always be the med. But um, and which is, is is something we're proud of because uh, at the med, we you know many lives were saved. Uh, but we are we are now known as Regional One, and, and we do a lot of things at Regional One besides trauma. Uh, we're, we have a, a newborn center, which is, uh, which is world renowned. Basically, uh, we have a burn center and, and on and on and on. But, uh, but I, my area of practice is in the, the trauma emergency department. Yeah. Well, so Justin, I don't think we have talked about, uh, emergency medicine on the podcast yet. So it's exciting to be able to, uh, have you on to share your, you know, how did you decide to go into emergency medicine and a little bit more about what that is. I remember when I was a student and a resident, um, emergency medicine was one of my favorite rotations. Um, partly of course, because there was always something, uh, exciting or oftentimes there was something interesting to learn. A lot of times, you know, you had some, some downtime, but, but because my preceptor was just, uh, so dynamic and such an awesome teacher, she had been, she had established her practice site there for, uh, about 20 or 25 years. So a lot to learn from her, but Justin share a little bit about, um, what it's like, uh, to be an an ED or trauma pharmacist. Speaking of education, are you aware of the 2014 drug disposal of controlled substances ruling that regards safe disposal of unused medications? Well, we're lucky to have RX Destroyer sponsoring the Talk to Your Pharmacist podcast. RX Destroyer ready to use chemical drug disposal systems are safe, easy, and affordable products, which protect the environment and can save thousands in fines. To get more information on products, training, and medication waste compliance, check out www.rxdestroyer.com slash talk to your pharmacist. So, uh, so my, so at regional one, we, we are a little bit unique in that we have, uh, we have several different ERs. We have a trauma ER, we have a medicine ER, we have a labor and delivery ER, and we have a burn ER. So, um, in my areas of practice are specifically the medicine ER and the, the trauma ER. And, and I, I cover both those areas. So things switch sort of between very mundane, very routine. I'm, I'm tapping on my computer for a while. And then suddenly there's what we call a shock trauma. 
that happens. So a severe trauma comes in and a multidisciplinary team sort of converges on all together in this, uh, in this room, shock trauma bay, uh, where a patient is being stabilized and being triaged to determine where, where they need to go next, um, whether it be a CT scan or the operating room or you know, hopefully they're not as injured as badly as uh, our initial, uh, the initial assessment indicated, they'll go just to the emergency department. So, uh, so it goes from sometimes very tedious almost, uh, you know, just your, your normal pharmacist duties of, of reviewing medications, of uh, determining is, is this medication appropriate for this patient to Literally, you're in a room with somebody who is is on the you know teetering between life and death, and uh, you know sometimes has very severe traumatic injuries. And but once that's over, it's over, and you go back to to whatever thing you were doing for a few minutes or for a few hours or or whatever. So it, it's interesting how quickly it it goes from sort of routine to very interesting back to routine. Yeah. And would you say, Justin, are there any particular seasons or maybe time of day or anything where um, there might may be more traumas or emergency room visits than others? So, yeah, on, on the trauma side, traditionally, the, the warmer weather months, the summer months are what we call trauma season. That it doesn't always completely hold true, but. You know, in the warmer weather months, you have more people outside riding motorcycles, uh, riding four wheelers, uh, doing outdoor things that you may be injured doing that you wouldn't be doing in really cold weather typically. So um, that certainly plays into it. But on the on the medicine side of things, sometimes we're busier in the colder weather months because you know right now we're sort of being hit by our second wave of flu this year, uh, for example, and just all your, your, your cold weather complaints of colds and, uh, and flu and, and different kinds of uh, cold weather sicknesses. So, uh, so hopefully there's a, a balance between the two. So, so we're not overwhelmed, but sometimes, uh, you know, sometimes it's, we're crazy busy on the medicine side and on the trauma side and, and just, you know, there's a lot going on in the ER at any given time. Absolutely. Uh, so you know, or even things like medication reconciliation part of um, your role, or is that, um, you know, something that, that you all do at, in the ER at the, at regional one? It, it's something that is part of my role for, uh, so we don't re- re- routinely do it for every mm-hmm. patient uh, in the ER, in the ER, but we do it for patients where it's going to make a major impact on their care in either in the ER or uh, post admission if they get admitted to the hospital. So that's just how our system works. Other ERs, uh, that is a major responsibility that ER pharmacists and um, it, it is a, it's an important responsibility in the setting where I practice, but we try to, um, trying to use our time uh, in the best way possible by, by narrowing it down to the patients for whom we, we think that's going to make the biggest impact. Sure. And uh, what would you say are some of the, the biggest opportunities uh, for pharmacy in the ED? 
there are a lot, I mean, there, there's so many things going on in the ER that it's just, you have to, sometimes I just have to, to sit back and say, what can I have the biggest impact on? There are almost always things I could have impact, you know, on if I had the time to, to, to do all the things, uh, some of them much bigger impact than others. Um, on the trauma side, for example, uh, a major issue is patients who are on anticoagulation prior to arrival. Uh, you know, especially elderly patients who are on uh, Coumadin or um, Xarelto or Apixaban or you know, Plavix and so on and so on. And so, if someone comes in, especially with a, a bleed, like a brain bleed, and they're on one of these medications. There's not a lot of time to, um, you know, and the ER time is very, um, it's a very precious commodity. We don't we don't have hours and hours, oftentimes, to make decisions, especially on the trauma side. We have minutes. So trying to determine, you know, appropriate reversal strategies for these patients. Do they need to be reversed? Um, you know, is it appropriate? And if it is, what's the appropriate uh, agent, what's the appropriate dose. And then, um, so, and in my setting, I don't really have the luxury of, you know, coming up with a plan and then letting someone else implement it. So for example, if we need to reverse, uh, a patient with a bleed who's on Xarelto and we need to use the, uh, our reversal agent, we, once we've, you know, I've conferred with the trauma team and we've made the decision that we're going to go forward with it. We're going to do this. Then, you know, I, I get the dose set up and then I'm head to the main pharmacy to to help uh, get the medication prepared as quickly as possible and then to the patient as quickly as possible for administration. So uh, especially for urgent things like that, I'm, I'm sort of involved in every step of that process. But but some of those medications are you know, many, many, many thousands of dollars. There's a new medication that's just been approved by the FDA called Andexa which is, the, there are two doses, a low dose and a high dose. The low dose uh, price is what they publicly announced is $25,000 per dose. The high dose, which will be used in some situations, is $50,000 per dose. So you can see if you could, you know, make an impact and, uh, you know, help, uh, help the team determine that this medication in this instance isn't appropriate or is appropriate, it wouldn't take too many of those interventions to uh, to make a big financial impact and to you know to pay for a pharmacist salary in the ED for you know for example. So so that's just I mean that's just one thing that we do, but you know it's a place where you can make a pretty large impact both on the patient's uh, care and uh, financial impact. Absolutely, thanks for sh- for sharing more on that. And so Justin. Uh, your schedule is a seven on, seven off, and do you are there two ER pharmacists at at uh, Regional One, or or how many pharmacists are down there? We ha- we have two uh, in the during the day uh, to cover the daytime hours, and uh, we actually have an overnight pharmacist uh, in the ED who's going to be starting in about a month. So so we're we're expanding our footprint in the ED. Uh, at Regional One uh, Pharmacy is. So we're excited about that. Awesome. And so, Justin, uh, a lot of times uh, in the ER, we also see a lot of opioid uh, issues, you know, maybe some overdoses and things like that. And and, um, in your bio, you mentioned that 
you guys have started an opioid stewardship committee, which I'm sure a lot of the listeners have heard about antimicrobial uh, stewardship committees, but but this new movement towards opioid stewardship is uh, something to address the opioid epidemic that we're all seeing across the country. Can you tell us a little bit more about what that looks like? Sure. I've been working at in the ED for approximately five years. And not long after I started, we started seeing an uptick in patients who presented with uh, some sort of opioid overdose. And, you know, it's become a very routine thing now to see a patient who presents uh, either someone drops them off at the the front door, a a quote unquote friend, uh, after they've overdosed and we have to, you know, try to revive them or they're picked up you know, by the police or by the EMTs and the ambulance services uh, and given Narcan in route after opioid overdose. So that's unfortunately a, a commonplace occurrence, uh, almost everyday occurrence. So we have tried to, to make some inroads into combating that, although from the emergency department setting, that's difficult for someone who's already addicted to, to these substances. Uh, we, you know, we try to make an impact by helping them get to some sort of treatment facility, but, but often people who've been reversed from an overdose are, that's, they're less concerned about getting to treatment at that point than they are getting out of that withdrawal state that they've been pushed into by receiving Narcan. And they're, they're just worried about trying to get their next fix, basically. I mean, that's sort of the reality. So uh, we've done a, a few things that we've been working on for uh, for at least a couple of years. We started uh, providing take-home uh, Narcan kits to, to patients who present with overdose directly from the ER. So uh, there was a study that came out recently that said prescriptions for Narcan uh, written in the ER have about a 1% mm. fill rate. So we are you know, we have tried to, to bypass that by putting it directly into their hands, ideally into the hands of a family or friend, family member or friend who can actually administer that. But, but that's, that was one step that we took. Uh, we have um, been involved with the Tennessee Hospital Association uh, in a pilot project that, that several hospitals around the state have taken part in over the past year to, uh, to reduce our opioid use in the ED with the thought that the fewer opioids that you're exposed to as a patient, the less likely you are to become uh, dependent and then ultimately addicted to opioids. So that's something that over the past uh, past year, we've reduced our opioid use in the ED by uh, approximately 20% uh, using other agents uh, for uh, conditions where that's appropriate that are, are non-opioids, but that still provide pain relief. And so out of these different efforts, uh, myself and one of our ER physicians with the support of our uh, ER medical director, you know, have just sort of been building on that. And then ultimately, uh, we started a a system-wide committee, an opioid, what we initially just called an opioid committee, more to give information to the rest of the system uh, and the providers and, and different healthcare professionals in the system, just information about opioids. And, and it's sort of grown now to, um, and especially now with some joint commission requirements that have just been enacted, that committee has now ultimately grown into uh, a system-wide stewardship committee where we're trying to make an impact, uh, much like we have in the ER, throughout the system and providing alternative 
treatments uh, to opioids for pain, uh, to, for pain, uh, for certain conditions. Now, that doesn't mean if you come in with a major trauma and you you have an open fracture, we're going to give you Tylenol uh, because uh, that would not be in, that would not be appropriate. But uh, opioids certainly have their role in uh, acute pain. But we are trying to, on a system wide level, uh, to provide alternatives and, and reduce our opioid footprint uh, in every aspect of the hospital. And, and there are some areas where that's just not feasible, uh, at least with the current you know, science and information that we have. Opioids are still the, the most appropriate treatment for some conditions, but, but that's how we're addressing it as, uh, on the system level. So it's grown from a, a few small steps in the ER to, uh, to a system-wide uh, level of of addressing and using data uh, to to see what areas and are there certain providers or are there certain uh, services that that use more opioids than others and, and just providing that information to them because sometimes once people uh, and providers can see that information and realize that uh, their peers are able to treat the same conditions with with fewer opioids and treat them appropriately that's all it takes to sort of nudge them in, in the, what we think of as the right direction away from opioids and, and trying other uh, equally efficacious treatment modalities. Yeah, that is really impressive um, that, that you've grown that out of the ED where, I mean, that's just so appropriate because you, you probably are seeing a lot of patients with, you know, that have overdoses, as you mentioned, and that, that probably present with with drug seeking behavior. Um, and so you're, you know, a lot of, of patients probably had been discharged on opioids. So, you know, making that Narcan program widely available and, and that this is a really started as a pharmacy led initiative. That's, that's really impressive. Um, great work that you all are doing. Um, Thanks. I do, but I do want to say that this was only possible through the the support of uh, of our ER physicians that uh, that I've been working with, and uh, you know, by working by working together with them, at, you know, just like on the on when traumas come in, it's a team effort, and it's exactly the same thing with the opioids. That it's not something that that pharmacy or, or I myself could do all by myself. I, I just want to make that clear that it is it it has to be a team effort for it to work, and I just appreciate everyone on our team, recognizing the importance of this and, and working together. Absolutely. Um, and you know, that type of, of collaboration building and, and teamwork, um, is how awesome things like this are accomplished. And, uh, the humble, uh, you know, kind of mentality too, it goes a long way. Uh, so Justin, um, another thing that you're involved with is, uh, social media. So you moderate a Facebook group that has, remind me how many, how many Tennessee pharmacists are all involved in, in that, in that group? We have approximately 500 uh, pharmacists who are, are directly in, uh, members of the group and involved. Yeah. In. Awesome. And, uh, and t- just tell a little bit more about kind of what that group is and, you know, how long have you been, been doing it? And, um, you know, I'm a member of the group and, and I'm always keeping up to date on things all across the state. You've got, even though you're based in Memphis, which is the, 
what, about an eight hour drive away from, um, from Knoxville and the other corner of the state, you still are, you know, sharing that information, uh, across the statewide. Yeah. Um, I mean, Tennessee is an extremely long state, uh, which I'm reminded of whenever I uh, head up to the Eastern corner. Um, I'm a Tennessean by birth, uh, and basically lived my entire life in Tennessee. And, uh, about three years ago, I was just thinking there's, there's not a lot of great resources for news about pharmacy and healthcare on, a on the local, like state and local level, especially for pharmacists, you know, or specifically for pharmacists. There's a lot of information on a national level that's out there about sort of the big, big picture. But uh, as we think about, you know, like with, with food and with other things about what's going on locally, that I sort of was interested in, in that on a local level and how we could get some of that information to our pharmacists. Because I have friends who are pharmacists, um, in Middle Tennessee, East Tennessee, and you know everywhere in between or, or across the state of Tennessee, and <clears throat> and I'm also inter- I'm, I'm just very interested in, in these sort of things myself. So I'm always sort of digging around and, and reading uh, stuff from you know whether it's the New Sentinel in Knoxville or the Tennessee and the Nashville or Commercial Appeal or Daily Memphian here in Memphis. Now I'm just sort of doing this already. So I started sharing some of this information that I found with with a few. Uh, friends, you know, started out with just a handful of people that I thought might be interested in. Uh, it's grown to about 500 pharmacists, uh, and uh, several of them are, are involved in involved in the colleges of pharmacy on an administration level, or they're involved um, with the pharmacist association on an administration level, or or different different things like that. So uh, I, I hope it's it's helpful. I wanted to spread information, but also just something I'm interested in general is how pharmacy is portrayed in the media, both positively and negatively. And uh, it's it's interesting how it can be either one, just depending on how the, the what the story is about and how how the, the news media wants to, to spin the story. I'm not I don't uh, I appreciate what the news media does. And I feel like it's an essential piece of our uh you know, of our system, the role that they fulfill. Uh, but sometimes there are inaccurate stories that get posted and put out there. Uh, some of them putting pharmacists in a bad light. And we've had multiple stories uh, from our group, uh, multiple media reports that members of the group have, have gone to that media site directly. Uh, you, you know, usually it's if they're, if it's in their home, uh, hometown or home city, uh, they've taken the initiative to, to go out there and get the story corrected. And that's happened multiple times. So that's something that I'm proud of and that I was hoping to accomplish uh, through this group, besides just spreading information, uh, helping to, uh, to advance the role and the cause of pharmacy in, uh, in the state of Tennessee. Especially. Yeah. Well, I love that point that you brought up about how pharmacy is portrayed because uh, you're, you know, essentially creating a, a watchdog, you know, just looking out for the profession and, and, uh, because we do have to, to make sure that our image is, is portrayed in the right way. And I think that there are, are great campaigns that are being, uh, released right now, uh, one kind of spearheaded by AACP is Pharmacists for Healthier Lives. And it's a PR campaign to educate really, you know, 
moms uh, as kind of the drivers of their family's health, but to educate about all of the the different things that pharmacists can do. And so um, for you and for, for others in, you know, the state of Tennessee to be on the, the lookout for how information is uh, shared about pharmacy and make sure that there are no inaccuracies. Um, that's, that's a great service to the profession. Um, and just to kind of create something, you know, from the ground level and watch it grow is awesome. Love to hear if, if others have things like that in, their other, in other states across the country, but it's been really impressive to see that grow here in Tennessee. So Justin, as our final question, what is some advice that you would share with your younger self or for other pharmacists who are just getting started in their careers? Well, if, I guess for my younger self, I would uh, tell myself to take some more biology classes when I was getting my English lit degree. That would have saved me a little time down the road. But I don't know. It's uh, it's easy to to look back and um, and and see what looked like mistakes, but then a couple of years down the road, say, oh, this led me to a really great place. So, I mean, one piece of advice is. If you are not happy with with what you're doing, then then find a way to to change it. Um, it may not happen immediately, and it may take a lot of work. But um, you know, I honestly, when I was an English major, you know, I took science for uh, well, science for dummies. <laughs> I took the easiest science classes I could because I just never saw myself in in that sort of setting. But when I decided that that's what I wanted to pursue and uh, and put my uh, nose to the grindstone, it was something I was able to accomplish. So, uh, you know, for our, our younger pharmacists, I, I feel like the job market currently may be a little tight and it may be pharmacy may look a little different over the next few years than it currently does. But hopefully it will look uh, it'll look better. Uh, it'll be uh, a profession that we can even be more proud of, but it, it's going to take work and it's going to take uh, taking the initiative uh, ourselves to to push programs and projects um, that are going to make a real difference in the lives of our patients. And I think that if if our colleagues, you know, our medical colleagues, our nursing colleagues, our uh, other healthcare colleagues, administrators in our systems, whether that's in a, a healthcare system or if it's in a community setting, and you're part of a, a chain pharmacist, there's always room for for growth. Uh, it's just you have to be sometimes willing to, to look a little bit outside the box and, and then to be willing to put in some some work to, to make that happen. Absolutely. That's great advice. And, you know, if you don't like something, then change it. And, you know, you just have to put in the work to be able to do that. Well, Justin, it's been a pleasure to have you as a guest on the Talk to Your Pharmacist podcast. Thanks, Hillary. It's been a lot of fun. And if you enjoyed this episode, be sure to check out the show notes at www.pharmacyadvisory.com. And thanks again to our sponsor, TheraWorks Relief, a topical muscle cramp reliever. Thanks for listening to this episode of Talk to Your Pharmacist, produced by the Pharmacy Advisory Group. If you liked this episode, let us know by subscribing to the podcast, rating, and reviewing it share it with friends. And if you want to be a guest or know a pharmacist leader who has a great story to tell, connect with me, Hillary Blackburn on LinkedIn and check out our Facebook page, Pharmacy Advisory Group for updates on new podcasts.
Thanks for listening. 